thanks for tuning in to the Writers of Color Reading Series, a podcast presented by the Englert Theater and hosted by me, Chuy Rentería. At four in the morning, I was the only child, let alone girl, to rise and accompany the fathers and uncles fishing. When I caught my first northern pike, my dad held it up the way one holds a bass, which is a very stupid idea. His thumb was shredded, and he said it was because he was so proud that he wanted to hold it up for a picture with me. He was probably high as a kite, but I held the fish by the gills and smiled, with my mother's big teeth and my mother's olive skin and my mother's dark eyes and my mother's mother's curly hair flying around in the still air. In a lake of green water, in a sea of blue eyes, in a field of blonde hair, I kissed my fish and laid it gently in the cooler. I kissed every fish I ever caught, whether I let it go or not. I kissed other people's fish, too. They always tasted like sour water and left a trace of sweet slime on my lips. It was the most magnificent feeling in the world. Sometimes the hooks would get stuck in the fish's eye or ear or face or worst in the stomach. My grandfather would have to pry it out with needle nose pliers, like the ones my mom fixed my braces with when I was seven. It was like surgery to help the fish. So why did they leave so much blood in the cooler, turning the ice a fruity color? Beats me. So did my aunts and my grandmother when their children did something wrong. I walk for a while. I take College Street to the Ped Mall. It is a Friday, so everyone is out. But it is cold, so everyone is hurrying. I walk slowly, but not too slowly, because there are hooligans among us. I wonder how they are all feeling. Once I cross Madison, I don't see a single soul. I walk up to the bike rack at the JMCB, where I used to park and occasionally see my professor walk into class. I was always running late, so it was a source of pride, arriving in time to see him saunter in with his gloves, gray dress coat, and his little black hat. I brush my bare hand across the rack, upside down black U's fused to the ground beneath somehow. My feet feel heavy. I reverse out of the bike rack's dead end and head under the bridge to the EPB. A year and a half ago, when everything was normal and there were people out and I had parents and I rode heifer, flirting past John atop his bike named Bike, and there was sun and wind and cool estate cell jackets on my back, I coasted carefully through this underbridge, feeling like I was on top of the world. It is so much colder now. I walk up to the east doors, trailing my bare hand along the rail, brushing my fingertips down the pole handle. Three semesters passed, flit through my mind like an old picture show. Malcolm's older brother Francis at military school messing with the slides. So many classes, my journey through the EPB's halls halted one and a half semesters in, two and a half robbed justifiably from my riot-proof fists. A man walks up to the doors from the inside. I am not wearing a mask, so I turn around and walk away before he leaves. He frightened me. I wonder what he was doing in the EPB at eight o'clock at night. Probably things I would be doing in there at this hour if life was normal anymore. I descend the steps as if I'm leaving class. Except I'm not leaving class, I'm leaving everything. Pretty heavy. I was invited by my father to go night fishing with him and his father. The offer was never upheld, but they went alone one time and perhaps took my step-cousin Zach with them, which did hurt me. They arrived home with two catfish, one of around 35 pounds and the other of around 24. I couldn't figure out which one was male and which one was female, or if they were both the same sex, I couldn't decide that either. No one really talked to me during this time. All of the other cousins with blue eyes, even the ones with brown hair, sat atop the catfish and smiled or cried in fear as their parents took pictures of them, both reactions of which they hooted about. 
It was not for my eyes that they were deterred from taking pictures of me, so they cannot be faulted for discrimination. Moreover, it was their lack of love for me, which I suppose could be rooted in discrimination. Perhaps it was rooted in jealousy, because I was kind. Because when the photo snapping and hooting was finished, and everyone disappeared, mysterious even to my prying, grinding gears, I returned to the kitchen and I kissed the two lovers, or so I proclaimed them in my mind. They were warm and sticky. I wanted to give them an ice bath to soothe their muscles. And at five, I wondered, how could my family be jealous of someone they didn't believe existed? The catfish were whisked away eventually. I can't remember if we ate them or not. I know for sure we didn't eat the deer my father left hanging by the neck in the garage for over a year. Thank goodness there were no cars in there because their grill nostrils would have sobbed in agony, I'm sure. The poor thing was rank. However, I do remember eating venison. My grandfather grilled it like the steak and chicken kebabs my mother and stepfather made. However, they cook everything well done. I thought doing things well was the best way to do things, but my grandfather seemed to think differently. I was served a kebab of only meat on a plastic plate of royal blue color, not to be confused with a royal's blue plastic plate. That would complicate all characterization up to this point. Or it would provide a delightful, digestible plot twist for any starving readers, but I don't really see a benefit to either. Because any and all starvation should have surely been cured by the nicely grilled cubes skewered by splintery wood. I was eating alone, outside on the floor of the deck, while the rest of the children ate inside with every other member of the extended family. I bit into one of the cubes and blood dribbled down my chin. Oh dear, I thought. And so I encountered my first mate rawer than well done. Perplexed with how I was going to stomach this, as said stomach was already roiling, I wrinkled my nose, making sure no one could see me do so. I looked down at my bite mark, imprints of the side profile of my chompers clear as the front handful had been whisked away from under my pillow a few weeks prior. The meat was bright red. Oh dear. I drummed up the courage to ask my father for advice, because the reason I didn't like raw meat was not because I hadn't had it before. It was because I had heard it could give you salmon ella. This, I had learned, was a nasty disease one could contract from both geckos and undercooked meat. Oh, and eggshells. Duh. To my surprise, surprisingly, my father was furious. He began to chastise me harshly for being ungrateful, as my grandfather had worked very hard on grilling the meat to perfection. Perhaps to elicit pride, within him or myself I was unsure, I obediently ate the meat, side tooth bite by side tooth bite, blood dripping softly from my lips to pelt the plate. It was unideal. But eventually, I finished, triumphant within myself, but of course careful to always keep that triumph hidden. To my surprise, surprisingly, my father was not satisfied. Clean your plate. What? Clean your plate. But I ate it all. It was delicious. Thank you. Clean. Your. Plate. Don't let all that good flavor go to waste. I stared at him for longer than I normally would, not caring for a moment how it might appear that I was challenging him. I blinked once. You mean like, lick it off. I looked at him for another brief moment, and then I turned, picked up my plate, and licked it clean. It was cold since all the meat I'd been eating had been cold for a while. The texture of the patterned plastic rubbed against my tongue and I felt like a cat, reminiscent of a lion eating a zebra, pink coating my soft, mustached snout. I would have rather been a giraffe eating leaves off a tree, or better yet, Littlefoot with his short brachiosaurus neck, too small to reach eating low-hanging greenery so as to save all the adults the neck ache of having to bend down instead. I would have rather been anything but myself right then.
We are joined today by Makaya Hilgren, who grew up in West Des Moines, Iowa. She is an almost graduate, spring 2021, of the University of Iowa, studying English and creative writing and sustainability. Just from the very, very beginning, I, I, I want to say that I love the piece that you read. I, I got a chance to read it before, uh, you, you know, when you submitted it. And I think, honestly, like the ending of that gave me the most like visceral reaction of any piece that I've heard so far this season. And you're the second undergraduate that we've had on on the season so far. And it always amazes me because I I'm trying to pick like place myself when I was 18 years old and like like the the you know I don't want to be like oh the courage but like you know it does take a lot to come and, and talk and, and kind of put yourself on the platform. So I'm so appreciative of the writing that you do and the fact that you're you're here to join us. So I just want to say thank you. Yeah, thank you. Could you talk a little bit about where you are right now in terms of school and, and how you got to the University of Iowa and, and a little bit about your your like your writing journey, if you're comfortable with that? Yeah, of course. So I went to high school in West Des Moines, um, which is pretty close. It's only about a couple hours west of Iowa City. Um, so I came to the University of Iowa because it was by far and away the cheapest option. Um, and they had English creative writing, which is the major that I wanted to pursue. Um, so that's why I came here. I originally started taking poetry classes because when I was younger, I wrote a lot of fiction and then I got into poetry just before college. Um, so I thought I was going to go into like fiction or poetry. I had never really written nonfiction. It wasn't really my thing. I didn't really know much about it. And then I started looking into it my fall semester of freshman year of college. So kind of right when I got here, I think I had like a required course that was like foundations of creative writing. So they had us do some poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. So I guess I kind of got into it because it was a bit of a requirement. But then I realized that that was my thing. So I've kind of just been writing nonfiction ever since. I, I followed a very similar path. It just, it, it took me a lot longer. <laughs> you know, I'm 35. I, I'm 35 now. And I, I was the same way where everything I had written, you know, high school and even through undergrad, was fiction was this kind of you know like hybrid forms and i never really thought about writing nonfiction until maybe like five years ago H how do you feel about the vulnerability of it right because of the fact that it's also you putting yourself out there like i mean do, do you have to grapple with that too for me i'm quite an open person like when i was little i was that kid that overshared um, doesn't really bother me these days, especially because I've had people start to tell me like, hey, Micaiah, like when people are talking to you, you just like slip in a, a couple threads of trauma and they just like really trust you and they really open up to you immediately. The way I regarded that was at first, like I felt bad because I felt like an oversharer and I was making people uncomfortable. But recently I've realized that it actually makes people more comfortable for me to just share about my life because they feel like I'm a not going to judge them for sharing theirs and b like it kind of normalizes just sharing about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So that ending of that piece, can you talk a little bit about it? I mean, like we're talking about nonfiction. So, I mean, is it safe to assume that's like a real anecdote at the end of it? 
Yeah, that did happen. I think I was about like seven or eight, probably. And we were just having like a family lunch at my grandparents' house. Everybody was inside eating. I was outside. They used to, like, if the kids didn't like what was served, they would give them like mac and cheese or something, but they would never do that for me. So I think that's why I was I was in this position. I was not the only person who did not like what was for lunch that day, yeah. but I was one of the only people who had to eat it. I included it because I, I thought it was really interesting like how my child self processed that moment because my mom was always like, you should get your meat well done because if it's too pink, it can make you sick. It can give you salmonella. You shouldn't eat brownie batter that's had eggshells dropped in it because you could get salmonella. So I was just like that way that children like keep those little things in their head and store them for later. And it was all kind of culminating in this weird, bizarre moment. And I was like, I don't want to get salmonella. <laughs> yeah. The, the the reason I think I had such a like a visceral reaction to that story is like, and I, my apologies to all like the vegetarians and the vegans <laughs> uh, listening to this right now, but it's like, I had a, a very interesting encounter with my first not well done meat because Mexicans cook the shit out of their meat. Really? It's like, not even just like well done, it's like charred. So we'll have like hamburgers, steaks, hot dogs, and it'll be like black. And it's it's like a old school Mexican thing. Like if you talk to a lot of first generation people, they're like, oh yeah, like if you, you know, try to grab the meat early because like your dad's gonna, you know, the parents are gonna like cook, cook it to like a crisp. And I remember the, f- the first time that I had and I, I wrote about it in my like upcoming book uh I remember the first time I had a white person's burger and it was my friend Dusty Feldman his grandpa made like these big hockey puck burgers and it was like I remember being really freaked out because like you like in your experience like the blood was coming out and you know yeah. I think maybe I did have like the salmonella part of it too but then I took a bite and I was like oh my god what are these these are delicious <laughs> yeah so I had like a very different experience how has it been like doing because I've talked to different you know I've talked to different like grad students and stuff but I'm really interested in like the undergrad experience like since you had that kind of truncated time as like a quote unquote, like normal experience. And then you've had the last two semesters as a socially distant, like, are you doing most of your courses virtual right now? I take all of my classes virtually because I'm always running late to places. (laughs) (laughs) And to talk about like you getting into nonfiction and getting into like writing about these, you know, these real feelings and talking about this trauma or can be trauma, right? How has it been trying to get into, I'm, I'm, and I'm asking kind of selfishly because it was really hard for me, right? Like I was trying to finish this book in the middle of the pandemic. And I think a lot of people were like, oh, you have all this time to write. It must be awesome. And I was like, my mental health is at like a super low point right now. And I'm trying to write about these hard times of my childhood. This sucks. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I don't know if you had anything to add to that. Or... Yeah, I totally have had a similar experience as well. Like the essay that I read from is pretty much like the only essay that I have written in months. Like it took so much out of me and I loved writing it. I have a really specific memory. So like I remember exactly how I felt in these moments. Um, So it's really like 
cathartic and also fun to kind of relive them as like an adult, like looking back at what I was thinking when I was seven, but also there's, there's a lot of hard stuff in there too. So going through that, especially so isolated and I don't necessarily have many people to, to talk to about it and any workshop that I have is online, which is, it's a, it's a lot different than having a workshop in person. You know, getting workshopping something, getting critiques is such, I mean, it's such a draining thing, first off, like for me, you know, I, I imagine for a lot of writers, but there's something about it being in person where, I don't know, for me, it's like, you know, you have to look at me in the face, right? Like you have to look at me in my eyes if you're going to, if you're going to tear me down. If there's anything that you want to get out there, I mean, I know like you, as, as people can imagine that you're at the end of your last semester here and and probably swamped and and but if there's anything that you think people should look out for um or just anything you want to plug like feel free to give a shout out yeah i would love to have something to say but really i'm just like picking up a bunch of youth program part-time jobs over the summer i'm gonna be a bachelor with my dog like everybody's asking me what my future plans are and there are none and i'm fine with that but society is not so it's just really interesting yeah no that's completely fair because i think the last person i i asked that question to she's like a faculty um at at a college and she had the exact same almost like to a t she's like dude, life's crazy right now. I'm just going to try to survive. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah that's fair too. Yeah. Yeah. Makaya, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And and I do hope, you know, in the future we get to, uh, I, and, and again, for a very selfish reason, because I just, I loved um, what I did get to read of, of your work. And, and I hope that I'll get to read some more of it in the future. Thank you. And thank you for sharing everything you did with me. I liked getting to know you just a little bit. wonderful conversation again i'm i'm so amazed at you know undergrads doing so much and and doing such awesome work i mean to be very frank uh and when thinking of today's writing prompt uh there's something that makai and i were talking about uh towards the tail end of our conversation in in regards to to nonfiction. and i asked makai you know does she have any problems with the vulnerability or, or being the honesty that comes with nonfiction. And she stated, she gave this beautiful um, kind of recollection about her friends growing up saying that, you know, she's always just been able to go there, right? And it, it brought up this conversation of oversharing. And it made me think a lot about that concept and whether or not I overshare and whether or not we as a people overshare or don't do it. And to make it Uh, kind of a a quick snappy prompt for everybody. Here it is. Um, In this social media slash digital age, what are your thoughts on oversharing? Do you think we are sharing too much or maybe not enough? Maybe not enough of the things that actually matter. Where does honesty and vulnerability land in our current communications? Again, whatever thoughts or if you, if this inspires any type of writing, whether it be poetry, prose, nonfiction, whatever you want to do, um, 
go ahead and and get it out there and if you're comfortable with it you can send it to us at podcast at org, and we'd love to hear it and possibly share again this is chewy signing off see you next week Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Inglert. To learn more, visit inglert.org slash friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs and by the United States Regional Arts Resilience Fund. Phase One is an initiative of Arts Midwest and its peers United States Regional Arts and Organizations, made possible by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.